gentlemen, welcome to Truth Nation, episode 10. Chief, how are you this morning? I'm doing great, Bill. Glad to be here. Boy, this is a show, Mark, more than any other show where I completely expect, anticipate, and invite every single person that listens to this to get pissed off. <laughs> if you are, here's why I say that, if you are, let's say if you're for the legalization and decriminalization of marijuana, you're going to get pissed off at me. If you're against the legalization and decriminalization of marijuana, if you think every marijuana dealer should be in jail and you think that marijuana is the gateway drug to hell, you should be pissed off at what you're about to hear. If you're a small marijuana operator operating a licensed grow, a small licensed grow in Humboldt County, one acre, you're already pissed off by what's going on. You're going to be even more pissed off when you hear what's going on, when you hear what we have to say. How did we end up talking about this subject? You know, just about, well, I guess it's a couple of weeks ago now, there was a six-person homicide out in the, the Mojave Desert, out in San Bernardino County, the La Mirage area. Or, and for people that aren't from Southern California or don't know Southern California, this is a pretty desolate area. Like, they used to film old Western movies here. It's tumbleweeds, you know, dirt roads. That's the kind of community it is. Six people murdered. A hail of gun, bullet casings or shell casings, I'm sorry, all over the place. Four of the bodies were lit on, were lit on fire. And I got a call the next day from a local producer of a news outlet here. And understandably, San Bernardino's, it was a county where it happened. They're doing a homicide investigation. They're not releasing, nor should they be releasing details to the media right away. And this producer asked me, hey, this is what they got. What do you think happened? And my first thing was... Hey, that's uh, an area where there's a lot of unlicensed cannabis growing. It probably had something to do with unlicensed cannabis. Uh, and then I said, or perhaps uh, methamphetamine conversion. But here's why I said unlicensed cannabis, Mark. It's not because I'm a, an oracle or a genius. It's because guess what happened in 2020? You probably forgot. A seven-person homicide in Riverside County at a marijuana grow. Like, these marijuana grows have been home to some extraordinary acts of violence. And to be clear, when I say these marijuana grows, this wasn't a marijuana grow site. This was literally the middle of nowhere. But the sheriff of San Bernardino has come out and said that it was related. We don't know exactly how yet, but it was related to the unlicensed cannabis trade. Mark, Prop 64, that is the way, the vehicle by which we have legal marijuana in the state of California. It was voted on in 2016. The, the, it was passed. It went into effect in 2018. Since then, we've had legal cannabis in this uh, state, and it has been a utter disaster. Here's what Prop 64 promised. And by the way, just so everybody that fought for this, that's in the cannabis business, that believes in cannabis, just so you know, this bill was, or this proposition was, the reality was it was never even about marijuana. And that's going to be, that's going to piss some people off that I just said that. It was about social justice. It was about people who don't believe in incarcerating people for crimes. And it was about changing how our justice system handles certain drug crimes. That's really what this case was about. Who led the push for Prop 64? Your good friend, Mark, the governor, current governor of California, Gavin Newsom, he was the he was lieutenant governor at the time. He was head of this blue ribbon panel that that put together the plan to bring regulated marijuana to the state. And here's where the tax money was supposed to go to that came from Prop 64. First, the funds go to regulatory and administrative workload costs needed to implement, administer and enforce Prop 64, not covered by license fees. Specific amounts of the funds then go to, this is the one I want you to pay attention to, Mark, research and activities related to the legalization of cannabis and the past effects of cannabis-related criminalization. The remaining funds go to youth education, prevention, early intervention, treatment programs. I have, a, I have a request of society today, Mark. Here's what my request is. I get it that over the last 30 years, 40 years, there's behaviors, there's actions, there's drugs, there's words 
that were acceptable 40 years ago that are certainly not acceptable today. And I'm all for that, right? I agree with that. I'm glad that society has evolved and we've become more refined and we've changed what's quote okay with us and what's not okay with us. But I think where we get into danger is when we try to then go back and apply today's norms and acceptances to something that happened 30 years ago. Right. Those are two separate things. Those are two separate things. How we felt about something 30 years ago and how we punished something 30 years ago is different than it is today. And we shouldn't try to apply our today's rules to behavior them and have this incredible guilt about it. We should just change laws that we don't think are effective and move on. LA Times article th that came out last year. Now, LA Times definitely say what you want about them, but they called out, well, they called out California on this. This is a quote from them. Six years later, after the, the law was passed, 2016, six years later, California's legal weed industry is in disarray with flawed policies, legal loopholes, stick, stiff regulations hampering longtime growers and sellers. Despite expectations that it would become a model for the rest of the country, the state has instead provided a cautionary tale of lofty intentions and unkept promises. I could go on forever about this, Mark, talking about all the flaws in the law and why we're in such disarray today. You were working for California Highway Patrol in 2016, and then when this is implemented here in California in 2018, what do you recall about it? What were your concerns at that time? And, and then what have you seen since in, in this space that, that, you, that makes you feel that things aren't going right? And by the way, at the end of the show today, Mark, I'm going to explain to everyone how in 90 days, this is a bold statement I'm going to make, Mark, in 90 days, the U.S. government could address at least three quarters of the, the unlicensed cannabis production in the state of California with no new laws and without incarcerating one person. The ability to do that is there, and we'll talk about that today at the end of the show, and I'll tell you what the Biden administration said to that plan a couple of years ago when it was proposed. But before we get there, Mark, you were working for the state of California. When we started going down this road, what, what were your thoughts? What were your concerns about it? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm excited to hear about your proposal, 90-day plan, and... Um, I'm, I'm really curious. You piqued my uh -huh. interest in that one. So going back to 2016, and even a little before that, you know, Prop 64 bill, it, it doesn't stand alone in, in, in California government, in California culture, uh, California politics. It doesn't stand alone. Cal Prop 64 was, was part of a litany of bills and laws, bills that became laws that in my opinion were really undermining public safety were really in opposition to most people's values and general positions on a day-to-day -day basis in California. You're talking about uh, AB 109 and Prop 47. These had to do with releasing people early, reducing sentences, reducing penalties for certain violations of the law things like this. And Prop 64, again, was just one in a number of things that I felt as a law enforcement citizen and as a citizen of California that were really attacking and undermining the rule of law. As simple as that. It being with the Highway Patrol, of course, one of the things that we were anticipating specifically with Prop 64, the, the legalization of personal use marijuana, the, the the law was so, in my opinion, so poorly written. There were so many loopholes. There were so many questions that weren't answered. They weren't addressed in the law. Uh, on the surface, it seems like it, but there's so much gray area. And one of the things, of course, for Ohio Patrol that we were concerned about was, okay, you legalize now. And by the way, going back, we weren't, I wasn't polyannic. The Ohio Patrol wasn't polyannic. We, we weren't pretending that there wasn't massive use of marijuana anyway. But we did understand that now legalizing it was going to increase the number of people that were using it. There were some people who were not using marijuana specifically, and maybe a small percentage, but specifically because they didn't want to break the law. Mm -hmm. As simple as that. They weren't worried about impairment. They weren't worried about even maybe social norms. They simply just didn't want to get 
a misdemeanor or an infraction citation for use or possession of a personal use amount of marijuana. So we knew that to whatever level there was going to be increase in use. So an increase of use of anything, if you increase the use of alcohol, you increase the use of a controlled substance, whether it's cocaine, it's methamphetamine, it's PCP, it's heroin, you increase the use of, of a mar marijuana. Well, what's that mean? Well, there's no way that you're not going to get an increase in the number of those people with those substances in their system who are now operating motor vehicles. It's just, mm -hmm. it's just logical. You know, you can't have one with the up the other. You can't have these same people say, oh, good, I'm going to, I'm going to use marijuana now. I never had before, or I'm going to use more of it. It's more accessible, things like this. And also believe that they're going to make sure they don't hop behind the wheel of a car. So from, from a practical point of view, and from the position of the primary role responsibility of the California Highway Patrol, and that is traffic safety, the smooth, efficient flow, safe flow of traffic, how is this going to Im impact our mission? How is it going to impact our mission? Well, one of the things that was a question mark for everybody was how do we, and it's always been a question, but how now are we going to arrest people and get them prosecuted for driving under the influence of marijuana. And here's the reason that was a question. Because at the time, and to my knowledge today, there was not and there still isn't a presumptive level of marijuana in your system as far as impairment, legal impairment to operate a motor vehicle. I said, maybe that's changed. I've been away from the department for going on three and a half years, and I haven't kept up with that. Maybe I should look up for this podcast. But the point is, at the time, there was no presumptive level. For alcohol, it's 0.08% of your blood alcohol concentration. You are presumed to be under the influence no, no matter what, period. It's a statute. You're under the influence. For marijuana, there was no level of nanograms that translated to a statutory level of impairment. It didn't exist. One of the things that, as a result of that, the California Highway Patrol, I think it was $9 million. So it was somewhere around there. The California Highway Patrol, as far as I know, it was the only agency in the entire country that was given a grant to actually study what level of marijuana in the system would equate to a certain level of impairment and what mm -hmm. we could do to actually legislate this into law. So again, that that was given to the Highway Patrol. I know those studies took place at the CHP Academy in Sacramento. I don't know where that ended up. It, it didn't come to fruition before I left three years ago. That was the impact that we were foreseeing. More people driving under the influence, but actually how do we prosecute? You could always arrest for the influence, but mm -hmm. you have to be, art be able to articulate why the person was impaired in court. And that was the big wall that we had to get over. The other part of it, Bill, was this, is that, and we talked a little bit about this, and I would love for you to expand it because offline, you really did a great job of articulating this issue. And that was the anticipated cash revenue mm -hmm. generated by these marijuana dispensaries and how that would be handled. Long story short, the Ohio Patrol ended up getting in the business, I say the business, some reimbursable contracts of providing security for many of these dispensaries, certainly in Los Angeles County, where I worked at the time, and throughout the state, because of the known level of cash that was going to accumulate in these establishments, and they knew that they needed more security. Why? Because there were people in the black market that want to obtain either the cash and or the marijuana premises to go ahead and traffic it on the black in the black market. So... Those were the impacts, and that's what I remember about it. And my personal point, my personal belief about it was, this is going to end poorly. And that's where we mm -hmm. are today. Hey, the, I'll touch on that bit there about the cash, right? So, so, so right now, and especially in, in 18, when this started, and it's still true today, banks are hesitant to bank marijuana businesses, even if they're licensed in a state. Why? Because federally, and really the whole issue here, is the inaction of the federal government. No matter which side of the issue, you're, and this is what I was trying to allude to in the opening, no matter which side of the issue are, are, you are on, if you're pro-marijuana, anti-marijuana, you are getting screwed by the federal government right now. 
due to their inactivity. Let, let me tell you how crazy the situation is, Mark. Banks will not bank a licensed cannabis business. Why? Because the underlying offense is still a federal crime. Arguably, this is in violation of federal law then. So they, the way the Patriot Act is set up, the way that FinCEN is set up, a bank has to make suspicious activity reports when they think proceeds are coming into the bank that are resulting from a federal crime. They know it's resulting from a federal crime, right? So it's been very hard for these licensed cannabis businesses. And again, so people understand when I say licensed, I'm talking about licensed in a state, whether it's California, Colorado, wherever, a state that has legal cannabis, not federally. There is no federal license. It's illegal federally. So guess what else is crazy, Mark? You talked about the CHP and the worries about picking up this cash, this tax money, and the state taking in this cash money. This will blow your mind, Mark. Do you realize that cash money that the state was picking up is subject to federal seizure because it is proceeds from the sale of a controlled substance? So the state of California has money in its bank accounts that is subject to federal asset seizure and forfeiture by the federal government. Am I advocating that the federal government should do that? No, I'm not. I'm just talking about how screwed up the federal government has allowed this system to be. Here's an example. I talked to uh, a pretty high-profile person in law enforcement, let's say the head of an agency in my area. Mm -hmm. And he said, Bill, I have these unlicensed dispensaries in my area. I want help from you guys. We hear one of them has a whole lot of cash several million dollars. We want to go after them. We want to shut them down. We want you guys to seize the cash and seize it federally and forfeit it. And then the way the system works, Mark, as you're well aware, this department would then get a piece of that money. That's the federal law, right? And I said, sir, you have legal cannabis in your area, right? Your council, whether it's county council, city council, it's been approved for your area. Oh, yes, we do. So you license people and you tax them for cannabis sales in your area. Yes, we do. I said, what happens to that money? Well, that money goes into our county accounts. Some of it goes to law enforcement. And I said, okay, do you want us to seize that money? Mm -hmm. And he said, well, what do you mean? Do I want you to seize that money? No, they're paying for the license. I said, under federal law, it's all the same. The money, the cash money that you're taking in from these, quote, legal dispensaries, that's, according to the federal government, that's drug money. The money that's being generated by the unlicensed dispensaries, that is also drug money. And you're now asking me to handle it different ways based on state law. That's not the way the system should work, right? So that's how convoluted and screwed up this system is now, where in some cases, uh, proceeds from the sale of marijuana is being seized federally. And in other places, the federal government is allowing it to go as taxes into city and state governments. There should be just one set of laws that dictate what happens on this. Let's talk about the, the black market, Mark, because mm -hmm. that's, that's the thing that I feel like has really caused the one thing in Prop 64 that I think has caused the most issue was it changed cultivation of marijuana from a felony to a misdemeanor. Now, on the face, like, I know people are thinking, well, that's good. Like, if you have a, a half an ounce of marijuana, that should be a misdemeanor, not a felony. You, you're not going to get an argument from me. Surprisingly, you're not going to get an argument from me. But here's what it also means, the way California put it into effect. If you're growing 100,000 cannabis plants in an unlicensed grow, it's a misdemeanor. So it's really, it's really about the same as walking down the street with an open beer. That's what California has become. So what happens? What happens is people in 2019, and really more so in 2020, they flocked to California from around the United States, and they started cultivating cannabis, marijuana, because there were no repercussions, Mark. Right. And why, why does that hurt the people that are trying to do things the, quote, right way, according to Prop 64, the people who have obtained licenses, the people who have gone through the process, paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to do things the right way. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the tax structure. By my estimation, Mark, and I can break it down, 
the people that are following the rules, they're probably paying soup to nuts 70 to 80% in taxes, right? Mm -hmm. Where do I come up with that? Let's look at city of Los Angeles. Now, originally there was a tax of, let's talk about how it was originally. There, there was a tax that it got as high as $161 per pound for cultivation. I don't, so, so depending on the price of marijuana, let, let's just call that 10%, right? Let's call that 10% tax on cultivation. That's since been removed because they've recognized that there's only two ways in their minds to solve the problem. They either have to go after the black market or they have to make it more enticing for the clean market to, to proceed. So originally, though, 10% tax on cultivation, 15% state excise tax on the sale of finished product, 10% recreational marijuana tax by the city or town, 9.5% uh, sales tax. So what do we got there? We got 20, 35, we got about 45% in taxes before you've ever uh, off your gross. And then you, guess what? I don't know, maybe you're running a small corporation. It's an S, a pass-through, an S-corp or something. You're going to be taxed on your income. 25%, is that a reasonable federal income tax you're going to pay now? Your effective tax rate, tax rate 25% plus 10% from the state, another 35%. You're up close to 80% in taxes. Now, Mark, I'm going to offer you an alternative. Pay no taxes. Mm-hmm. It's exactly you can right. pay 70% is... in taxes mm -hmm. or you can pay no taxes. And guess what? Not a damn thing is going to happen. Good you're going to get a ticket and you're going to get a, a tax. The tax is they're going to seize your marijuana, bust up your equipment a little bit. Um, let me give you some numbers of where the black market is at, Mark, because I think that is key to this conversation in California. And hey, I could give, you know, I could give you my assessment, at least up until a couple months ago, I definitely had my finger on the pulse of this issue. But I also reached out for official comment from the sheriff's department, Southern California, a few of the sheriff's departments in Southern California, who are most impacted by this. And I did get some response uh, back from them. So let me explain to people what the, the black market looks like in in 2019, the state of California at that time had something called the Bureau of Cannabis Control. Now, they did an assessment at that time of what the black market does. And guess what, Mark? They've never done an assessment since. And the reason why they've, they've never done an assessment since is because everyone that saw this 2019 assessment has taken it, crumbled it up, and put it up their behinds to show how ineffective the, the current proposition is. They said in 2019, the black market was 80% of the marijuana market. That meant 80% of the marijuana in California was grown and sold out of compliance with Prop 64, no taxes taken out of it, et cetera. In 2020, there was, I don't know, hey, some people have said it's due to the pandemic. People were out of work. They, they were flocking to California to find an illegal business to make money. Whatever the case, in 2020, there was an explosion of unlicensed cannabis cultivation in California. The height of this was probably late 21, early 22. Now, San Bernardino said officially the height of cannabis cultivation, illegal unlicensed cannabis cultivation in their county was 2022. They believe they had about 1,400 illegal grow sites. Now, this is not someone's backyard, Mark. This isn't a plot in a garden, which is how some people were made to think of what the issue is, no. These are huge commercial grow operations, outdoor grow operations done, it made in the desert. And there's the structures on them are called hoop houses mm -hmm. and they're greenhouses where there's like semicircular PVC tubing holding up plastic sheathing. So it looks almost like an old Quonset hut, but it's not made out of metal. It's made out of uh, vinyl and PVC pipe. So if you took the counties of Riverside, San Bernardino and Los Angeles County, I would estimate that based on what I heard from them and what I know, there was probably at its peak at least 3,200 grow sites, illegal cannabis cultivation sites just in those three counties. How many plants are in a illegal grow? That depends, right? There's some that are just a couple greenhouses. There's one in Riverside, California that I know is in existence today, Mark, where there is 600 greenhouses. It's gigantic unlicensed uh, cultivation site. The average number of plants that I've seen, and we went back and we looked at 
when we help local law enforcement address this problem when I was at DEA, we, we got statistics, we got data. So my statements here are based on that data. The average number of plants per grow is 1,800 plants. And again, 3,200 grows. That equates out to 5,760,000 plants in this three-county area. Now, federal sentencing guidelines equate that to 11.5 million pounds of marijuana. I don't know how accurate that is. I don't think it's, I think you could get a, a pound of high quality marijuana from each of those plants. Maybe you can do two, two growing cycles a year in this area, in this part of uh, California. So I don't think it's outrageous to say two pounds per plant, but 5,760,000 plants, uh, pounds of marijuana in that three county area at the peak in 2022. Mark, that equals all the marijuana seized at the United States border with Mexico from 2012 to 2017, the year before this thing took place. I'll say that again. The amount of Cali uh, marijuana grown in this three-county area of California. Illegally. Uh, illegally. Illegally, illegally, not legally, illegally, without licenses, without any tax money going to the state, is approximately equal to all the marijuana seized at the United States border with Mexico from the years 2012 to 2017. In fact, an anecdotal story, Thailand has legalized marijuana. I don't know the specifics of the law, if it's medical, if it's recreational use, whatever it is. Thailand has legalized marijuana. And it used to be Thai stick was way back in the day, we're talking the 70s, mm -hmm. was very desirable, high potency marijuana to get here in the United States. And it was coming from Thailand and there was pressure being put on Thailand to get the problem under control and stop this Thai stick from coming into the United States back in the 70s. Guess what? Thailand says is their most challenging aspect to legal cannabis now. I would go brace ahead. yourself, Mark. It's keeping cannabis from California right. out of their country. Correct. We 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 complain about Mexico, right? We complain about drugs coming into California and from the United States from Mexico. Thailand is complaining about marijuana coming into Thailand from the state of California. That's how out of control cultivation has become in uh, California. California is probably the number one producer of marijuana, at least in the Northern Hemisphere, if not the world right now. And really, there's in ineffective controls. And I want to get your thoughts on that, but I want to set the table for the other things I want to cover, Mark. Human trafficking, mm -hmm. uh, the effect on our water table, and then the effect on our environment, but go ahead. And, yeah, and let me. You, well, yeah, when you hear about that quantity of marijuana that's being manufactured, let's call it what it is, when it's being manufactured here, and it's, let me remind you, Mark, it's illegal under federal law. Federal law enforcement's doing nothing. State law enforcement doesn't have the resources to do anything. If you're a licensed grower, you're getting screwed because you cannot compete with the black market. So you'll probably be out of business soon. Well, Bill about the legal grower dispensary being screwed is exactly why I want to focus on. And again, this all goes back to what I said earlier about this whole group, this whole procession's litany of all these laws that came to fruition about the last seven or eight or 10 years in California. Absolute disaster. And by the way, it's all an attack. It's all an attack on civility and public safety. I'm sorry. It absolutely is. Let me give you a little example here. So this article... This is published in a small publication, California City News. If anybody who lives in California is familiar with California City, it's, I'm surprised they even have a newspaper. No offense, but it's small. But they are in an area where this illegal behavior is incredibly impactful. And they have yes, they a are. direct, intimate stake in what's going on in California City. It's way up in the high desert, Mojave Desert, which is what you're talking about, Bill. Yep, And I've been to California City a number of times, and it is actually a quaint area. So when I talk about their publication, I'm just having fun. But it's uh, an article here, and it's, it was published to two years, almost to the day of the recording of this show, two years ago, 2022. And it's by Michael Blood from the Associate Press, who's quoting some people here. But there's a lot of highlighted, but let me skip here near to the end. Let me come back to some of this in a minute. It's very important. Mm -hmm. They actually interview a grower who remains anonymous. By the way, he's 
a legal, he's a licensed grower, they're mm-hmm. quoting a part of this article, but it talks about him living on both sides of legality and illegality. That's the only way he can survive. One of the quotes here, or actually one of the, the, the passages here, the anonymous grower said the burden of competing in the regulated economy simply doesn't make sense to many longtime operators who came up in the pre-Proposition 64 marketplace. There is a widespread mindset, quote unquote, why bother when the illegal economy is booming and there is little law enforcement to fear? It's exactly what you're saying. In Los Angeles, for example, Opening a retail operation can cost $1 million or more with licensing fees, real estate costs, attorneys, and inspections. If you can get a license at all, promises of social equity programs that would assist businesses run by people of color were targeted during the war on drugs have gotten off to an uneven start. Quote, no one is making money anywhere in the legal supply chain, he said, noting his own sales have no side. Kilo, this is a person I referred to earlier, sees few bright spots in the law that established California's legal market beyond a testing program that safeguards quality and programs to expunge old criminal records from marijuana. Which, by the way, that was part of the deal. So your record gets wiped clean. If you had previous convictions and things like this, but it says with Prop 64, we did it all wrong, he said. Yep. See, this is, in my humble opinion, this is another example. Once again, another example. Is that redundant once again? Here we go again. You're penalizing the law-abiding citizen in California. These people are trying to do it right. And so what you do is, you make it expensive for them to do it. Like you said, Bill, you tax the hell out of them. You yep. regulate the hell out of them. And then what's more devastating, actually, than that is what you don't do to the illegal grower, the illegal trafficker. You basically reduce anything they do to a misdemeanor. This is abhorrent. This is evil. If they were serious about regulating the marijuana and uh, marijuana industry if, if california were serious about that you would do two things you go ahead make it legal set up your inspection process the quality control that's all fine but first of all you would make it very inexpensive along with having the proper inspections and regulations i'm all for that when you're talking about dispensing drugs absolutely i'm all for that but you make it easy otherwise, at least financially, to start a business. Number two, anybody who is operating outside of the law when it comes to the production, the cultivation, and the uh, trafficking, the, uh, the sales of mar- marijuana, should be subject to the most devastating prosecutions under the law possible. It should be taken seriously. If you don't want to abide by the law, the laws come down on you with the heaviest hand possible. They did exactly the opposite. They made it more difficult for the legal law-abiding citizen to operate within the law than it did for the criminals to operate outside of the law. They made it more impactful. And that's because it wasn't about marijuana. It was about social justice. Exactly. This is exactly right. That's why I said it's once again part of this whole cake batter of all these laws that do nothing to promote civility, nothing to promote public safety, nothing to provoke the rule of law, nothing to promote self-responsibility, letting criminals out early, reducing penalties. And by the way, here's an example right now that you just gave about you can have all these tens of thousands of plants being grown. Basically, it it boils down to a misdemeanor. So Mm -hmm. this is another example of California screwing things up, doing things for the wrong reason, what you said, social justice bill. You're 100% right. By the way, cannabis donated a combined $400,000 to Newsom's first campaign for governor, the most given by the industry to any of the candidates in the 2018 election. And don't forget, Newsom was the one that chaired the blue ribbon, quote, blue ribbon panel that determined what should be in the legislation. And his buddy, I forget the guy's name, but it was someone who was a friend of his, was actually hired to actually write the law. 
So yeah, you know, I have it he, in one of my articles here too. But yeah, go ahead. probably the same. Probably the same article. We've already said it, but but here's the best thing to sum up the the impact of the black market. And again, this is from the L.A. Times in September of 22. They did a great expose on how screwed up the current system is. Far from reducing illegal weed, those efforts instead allowed the black market to flourish after legalization with the help of organized crime operations that run massive unlicensed farms and storefront dispensaries in plain view, bringing crime and terrorizing nearby residents. Those raided by police are often up and running again within weeks or days. Why? Because it's not a felony. It's a misdemeanor. It's really not, it's not anything to be concerned with. Absolutely. And by the way, when I quoted, the, when I was quoting that, that anonymous grower, that actually was from the Associated Press, the California City News article, I have that one here, that was actually also from 2022 as well, September 2022. And it's called Broken Promises, How Prop 64 Spawned Crime, Exploitation, and Public Corruption in California. Things you've, mm-hmm. already, you've already talked about here. But in that one, and they said the recent California City News is has this article we did see earlier because they're right there in the heart of where a lot of this is happening. Um, nearly six years of California voters approved Prop 64. Again, this is from 2022, legalizing mm-hmm. the recreational marijuana in California. They were banking on a promise that legalization would not only create a windfall, but would snuff out the unregulated market and replace it with a safe system, a safe and orderly system. Something I just addressed in my previous mm-hmm. rant about why California, they did one, legalizing it, of course, making it very difficult, and then making it meaningless. There's still teeth in people who are actually operating outside the law. This hasn't happened. As a scathing series by the Los Angeles Times document, and probably just what you're quoting here, these yeah, are different exactly. excerpts, yeah. there is now more illegal cannabis grown, being grown in California than ever before. The black market is more dangerous than ever before. People on lands are being exploited, and public corruption has reached new depths. And finally, the pitch for Prop 64 focused on grand benefits and end to drug possession laws that penalize the poor and people of color and the creation of a commercial market that in 2021 generated $5.3 billion in tax sales, the Times report. And, and, and Mark, let, let, let me just, and it's very clever the way they said that. I want people to understand not 5.7 billion in tax revenue, 5.7 billion in taxed sales. Mm-hmm. Oh, that the excellent point. Right. Tax sales. We right. Know so, about. so sales of 5.7, what was it 5.7 billion you said? I'm yeah, sorry. 5.3. 5.3 billion of taxable sales. And when you read that quick, you may think, oh, they generated 5 billion in tax revenue. Mm-mm. No, it was 5 billion in sales that are then taxable. Very interesting. This is another ex- excerpt from the uh, article from California City News. And for those of you who live in Southern California, I'm sure you're familiar with Montebello. It's a, it's a small town just about seven or eight miles east of downtown Los Angeles. Ruben Guerrera, who chairs the Montebello-based Latin Business Association, told the Times that he's witnessed attempted shakedowns of around half the cannabis license applicants he's encountered in Southern California. He reported the incidents to the FBI. And this makes, in other words, it shouldn't be surprising to anybody when you have this level of illegal influence. In other words, this is extortion is what it is. Mark, just so I'm clear, and I think so everyone's clear, this isn't like street gang members shaking people down. This is politicians shaking people down. Am I right? This is business licenses. Right. This is his claim exactly for the licensing process. That's exactly right. Uh, no one has been more slighted by Prop 64's failure than the legal marijuana businesses themselves. Thank Competing you. with the behemoth black market that has been nearly impossible, illegal growers helped cause a glut in the market that led to the no styling wholesale price last year. Again, this is 2022. Yeah. So they've done everything wrong. The Quite frankly, the criminals, the cartels have done, from their point of view, from a business point of view, they've done everything right, Bill. They've come yeah. into a market that was built for them, and now they're crushing the people who are trying to abide by the law with the licenses and inspections and things like this. So and, and I know the- I harp on this all the time, and I'm going to yeah. keep harping on it because if people don't realize that just about everything that California 
in similar states in the political sense, in the political demographic sense, do mm -hmm. is harmful to the safety and security and the the ability for people to prosper. If they don't realize that you are blind or you are willfully ignorant, this is just another example of how poorly California has run and how dangerous those decisions are to the average citizen in that state. The other thing that gets me about this, Mark, is think about the user of the end product. I hear people say, well, marijuana is legal in California, so at least it's safe. <laughs> That's not my experience. Like, even in the legitimate, you talked about the guy who said he, he was on both sides, right? Mm -hmm. Whatever the case, he was on both. A lot of what we see now, or a lot of what this market presents now is gray market, which means it might be legal businesses but they're also doing off-the-books marijuana transactions because they can't compete against the, against the black market. That's exactly right. His quote is, we basically subsidize our white market with our black market. Yeah. So in other words, he gets a lot of his resources from illicit growers because it's just too expensive and it's too unprofitable to do it the right way. So what we've had, by the way, talking earlier, Bill, about some of these regions in California, counties in California, I think you spoke about it, or I'm just remembering from stuff I read earlier about mm -hmm. Humboldt County. Mm -hmm. Humboldt County is in the very northern part of California. Humboldt County has historically been one of the biggest producers in the sense of a region of marijuana, not just marijuana, but primarily marijuana in California, since I started with the Higher Patrol, that's when I first learned about this. The California Higher Patrol, I believe it doesn't exist anymore, maybe for obvious reasons, but you have a program called CAMP, and I can't remember what the acronym stands oh, yeah. for. Yeah. Campaign Against Marijuana. It producers something, or yeah, something like that, yeah. Something like oh, yeah. that. And of course, yeah. CAMP worked very closely with the DEA yep. and with local uh, sheriffs and police departments in, in various regions throughout the um, state of California. But Humboldt County has always been a hotbed. One of the reasons is because there's so many desolate areas in Humboldt County and climate-wise, it's very, it's very favorable to growing marijuana, even outdoors. So, but the point is that the same areas that produced it illegally 30 years ago are producing illegally today. Nothing has changed other than may, probably a, a larger amount is being produced now than it was 30 oh, years yeah. ago. It's only it's oh, yeah. changed. I just want to throw that in there that I was yeah. never part of that program, but I was very aware of it, had friends who worked on it for a long time. Yeah. Hey, Mark, let me touch on a word that you brought up a few minutes ago, because I guess because of my experience, my background, I, I use the word very carefully and there's a lot of nuance involved and, and I'll explain uh, a little bit of how marijuana trafficking used to work. And it, it's the word cartel. You said, hey, the cartels are, I don't know, you said something like the cartels are just dominating the business or involved in the business, whatever. And by the way, since Prop 64 passed or went into effect, marijuana seizures at the U.S. border are down 88%, right? Mm -hmm. So here's a drug that the, the drug cartels used to make significant profit from in Mexico. And that profit was taken away. And I remember one of the politicians in California, Mark, I wish I could remember who it was. Back in 2016, and it could have been Newsom. I don't think it was Newsom, though. No. I don't want to put it on him if it wasn't him. He said it was a male. And I remember he said, we are, this law is going to, or this proposition is going to put the drug cartels out of business. And you and I talked about something a couple times on this show before called unintended consequences. When you do something and there's this unintended result, that makes the situation worse. Well, the reason why marijuana seizures are down 88% at the U.S. border with Mexico is because the drug cartels in Mexico, the leadership of the drug cartels, have gotten out of the marijuana business. And they've decided to focus on areas where they can scale their drug production. Guess what those areas are? Methamphetamine and fentanyl. So a part of what, and people go nuts when I say this, Mark, but it's just reality and it's fact. Part of the reason we have a fentanyl issue today and a methamphetamine issue and overall a synthetic drug issue that's going to get worse is because 
the drug cartels are not making money from marijuana anymore. And quite simply, they did what any business does. They looked at their portfolio and said, eh, let's drop this product. Let's add these other products. We can scale these products. So when I hear people say, and it's a very frequent thing, and hey, I'm not the absolute authority on this. People are welcome to use this word however you want, the word drug cartel. But when I hear people say, hey, there's these are cartel grows here in Southern California, in the desert, in this part of San Bernardino County, Riverside County. I don't describe them by my definition of cartel. I don't describe them as cartel grows. Here's why. The reality is there really hasn't been cartel grows even in Mexico since, I don't know, the 80s, maybe the early 90s. How marijuana trafficking worked is you're a farmer in Mexico. Your family has chosen to grow cannabis. They've probably been doing it for generations. You live in a climate, I don't know, the, the green triangle, whatever it's called down mm -hmm. there in Mexico. You live in a climate where the cannabis plant, the marijuana plant grows. It's conducive to growing. And as, a, as, generational, as generations come through, you continue to grow marijuana. And what do you do with that marijuana? Whatever, quote, drug cartel controls that part of the country you sell your marijuana to them, and then they take it, smuggle it across the border. They would take it in the, in the old days, smuggle it across the border, and sell it in the United States. How does the price work? They tell you what the price is. It's not like you say, hey, I have this for sale. I want this for it. No, the drug cartel that controls your region of Mexico, they say, hey, we're paying X amount of X dollars a pound for marijuana. You better take it, or it's not <laughs> going to be good for you, right? Mm -hmm. So that's how marijuana used to work, let's say in the 90s or the 2000s in, in Mexico. So what happens when you remove that profit for the drug cartels? They go to the growers up there and they either say, hey, no one wants this stuff because the stuff grown in California now is more potent. It doesn't have to cross the border. The only place where marijuana is illegal is when you're actually crossing the United States border now. That's the only place it's going to get seized from you. So what happened in Mexico? You heard about the price crashing here. The price crashed even more in Mexico. It's not profitable anymore. So what did those fa generational families do? The people that had experience that knew how to grow the drug, did they grow marijuana for drug cartels in the past? Absolutely. Were they technically employees of the drug cartels? No. Were they, you know, members of a drug cartel? No. They're, like I said, they're generations of Marijuana growers that live in Mexico, a lot of them came up here because they can't get paid for their product down there. They have the expertise to grow it. They come up here and they, uh, up here being to California, and they grow cannabis up here. So when people say there's cartel grows in California, I want to give you my opinion of that. These are not grow operations that are run by the hierarchy of, say, the Sinaloa cartel. Like, like Chapo's sons, the Chapitos, they're not sitting in a room saying, we are going to put together a new business strategy and we're going to send people up and grow cannabis, grow marijuana in California for sale. And that's going to be part of our part of our marketing strategy to make money. That's just not how it works. Is this organized crime? A hundred percent. Is it people that used to be involved in the drug trade in Mexico with cartels? Again, a hundred percent it is. Is this is the violence associated with this? Mexican national organized crime or a Mexican American organized crime. Is it any different than violence we would see from drug cartels? No, it's not. But I do like to make that distinction that when I hear people say it's drug cartels living in our backyard, it's organized crime living in our backyard. And to be honest with you, there's no difference between Chinese organized crime, Mexican organized crime, Armenian organized crime. It doesn't matter. The violence is all the same. Well, I appreciate that that clarification, Bill. I think it's important, certainly for me and the audience, to know that. And I didn't know those numbers about, in other words, how much the cartels almost completely had gotten out of the marijuana yeah. business. Listen, it, it, again, I'll say, and Mark, let me say it again. The seizures at the border since 2018 of mm -hmm. marijuana have gone down 88%. Yeah, I mean, that's, the, that's almost all of it right. is turned off from Mexico. There's just no reason... To do it anymore and i think that all by itself bill we've been on for almost a, an hour and i think that, that number right there 
that stat right there sums it up that California has become such a producer of marijuana and mostly illegally that's pretty put pretty much put the cartels in Mexico out of business in that specific capacity. It's just crazy. I will say this when you said there's no difference in the violence, looking at the scene, just the aerials um, from this mass murder in the Inland Empire in California. Yeah, it reminded me of this one of the early scenes in No Country for Old Men. If anybody's yeah. familiar with that, I mean, really did just how violent this was. And to know that this is taking place and it's not the first time, as you alluded to earlier about the previous drug related killing, it is absolutely, it's absolutely disgusting that it's happening. And not completely, you can't prevent everything, but to a large degree, these things don't have to be happening if if the leaders in California were actually taking responsibility for what's happening here and actually decided to do something about it. But I think that these lofty goals of, we talked about social equity earlier, are leading to exactly the type of crime uh, that we're seeing in California. Yeah. And, and hey, just since we talked about, you know, the violence and it, and just because it's not technically a Sinaloa cartel marijuana grow that doesn't mean the that doesn't mean the violence is going to be any less that murder in riverside in 2020 laotian mm -hmm. it was all it was laotians that were involved in the cannabis trade and seven laotians killed at, at, at this place yeah so so it doesn't have to be uh, hey it's i get it it's dramatic to say that and I, I just want people to understand that all organized crime is violent it doesn't matter and i also want people to understand that there's ancillary crimes and actually a big part of who's dominating this market now. And I actually have had my, my eyebrow went like this the past couple of weeks because I've seen these videos of our border with Mexico. And I've heard some of my, my, some of the people I follow on social media talking about military aged males from China coming across the border, in my opinion. Right. In my opinion, and this is going back a year or two, it was Chinese organized crime that was actually dominating the cannabis cultivation business in Southern California, which might come as a surprise to some people. They think, mm -hmm. oh, no, it, it's Mexican drug cartels. Well, like I, I gave you my thoughts on that. And now I, I'm telling you that a big portion of the, the grow activity, the unlicensed grow activity is conducted by by Chinese nationals and Chinese organized crime. That's just um, the reality of how it is. And to talk about some of the ancillary crimes, there was some, so human trafficking, Mark, that's a real thing with these grow sites. And I break it down into three different types of human trafficking. And maybe there's a better word to describe these situations. I'll look to you to provide that. The first one is the very obvious human trafficking. Like DEA agents have served search warrants. And the, the incident I'm thinking about was back in June of 21. And there was, the, the way these big cultivation sites operate is there's 200 makeshift greenhouses on a plot of land. And there's a bunch of trailers, a bunch of trailers, motorhomes, shacks, lean-tos that these people live in who are tending the, the marijuana plants, motorhomes padlocked from the outside mark so when there's a trailer that's padlocked from the outside obviously that person's not free to go at night when the people running the the grow site are sleeping that is human trafficking that's also slave labor there there's another type of trafficking and this one is a little different and i've seen it with chinese nationals who come across our south border with Mexico illegally. They come up to Southern California. They come with a passport because at some point they want to be able to get back to China. The passport and all their documentation is taken from them, from the people that are running the grow. And when they get it back, that just, you mm -hmm. know, that just depends. So that's almost like an indentured servitude type of thing where you're working off your, whether you're working off your payment to the coyote who brought you across the border or in, and in many cases, that's actually not the case. The case is actually they're voluntarily working on these uh, marijuana grows, but the people running the grows want to keep them around, so they're taking their documentation. And by the way, I encourage people to be very, I'm telling you human trafficking does happen. Right? I want to make that clear. 
But also you have to be somewhat inquisitive or skeptical when you hear some of the claims. And here's why, Mark. When you uh, are serving a search warrant at at an unlicensed cannabis grow and you encounter uh, the labor force, what's the first thing that they're going to say to minimize their culpability? No, I didn't know while I was growing. Well, they're going to say, like, I'm being held here against my will. I'm being forced to do this. They're not going to say, well, the guy's paying me $1,000 a week off the books. So that's the issue. Like everybody that's encountered has some story about how they're being forced to stay here. They're not allowed to leave, whatever the case. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm saying in cases it's true, but I'm also telling people some of that is to minimize their own culpability. So just be leery of that when you hear some of these claims. The final thing that I've seen, and this mark results in violence, and I'll be very curious to see when the, when the homicide detectives in San Bernardino solve solved that case if this played any kind of role. Hey, there's two kinds of violence in marijuana trafficking. One is the standard violence that is in any kind of drug trafficking. You stole product, you lost product, you stole money, you lost money. There's retaliation. Uh, A lot of times that retaliation involves kidnapping for ransom, kidnapping till someone else pays a debt, or just outright violence to make a point. The other type of violence is, believe it or not, labor disputes. When you're working at uh, an unlicensed cannabis grow, you can't call the, whatever it is, the employment develop EDD, the employment development department or whatever it is. You can't call HR. Yeah. You you can't call HR and say, Hey, my paycheck was short last week. I need somebody to address this or, or I'm going to call a lawyer and you're going to have a problem. Here's what often happens, Mark. The workforce comes into a grow first week. Everything's great. Everyone gets, I don't know, a thousand dollars cash. Second week, everything's great. Everybody gets a thousand dollars cash. Third week, paycheck's light. They get 500 cash. The boss sits them down and says, hey, times are tough. We're, we struggled this week. The price is down. We're, we're going to pay you, though. Don't worry. We're going to pay you. Just give us a little time. The next week, they only get 750 bucks. So now they're owed $750 each. And the guy tells them, well, we did a little better, but we're still, we're still short. Just hang in there. They create this, what I call almost like economic servitude, right? Mm -hmm. They create a debt with the person and the person knows, right? If I leave here, I'm never getting my money. So that motivates them to stay and keep working on the plantation or the cultivation site. And, and time after time, this debt increases. And sometimes it just gets to a point where it results in violence. And like I said, I'm curious in some of the very violent cases I've seen at at cultivation sites, if this is going to be what the cause is. Yeah, that's a good question. The, and, 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 yeah, these guys are not, they're not, they're not, and people say, oh, business is tough, so they can't pay them, huh? No, they have the money. They're just not paying them because they want to ensure that person shows up to work tomorrow. They want to keep stringing them along. So I, I think that's an important piece to talk about where the, where the violence comes from and that there is human trafficking. But then again, everybody that you encounter claims that they're a victim of, of something. Now, it's an excellent point, Bill, about the inflation of, of those numbers and that possibility and likelihood in those circumstances. But it's also true that, look, we know that the cartels are making billions of dollars with human trafficking. So both can be true. Numbers can mm-hmm. really inflate it, but they can still be the real number can still be absolutely catastrophic and, of course, horrible for the individual who's trafficked. I had to say, like I said earlier, I am curious about your 90-day Yeah, let, let me get to this that. Is, this um, is l- intriguing. L- l- let me get to that because we've been, been going, a, we've, been, we've been going a while, uh, a while now. In, in Southern California, the, the, as Mark, the desert area by name, by definition, there's no water. There's, there's, no water. there's no water out there. So there's two ways that these people, the traffickers, the marijuana growers, illegal marijuana growers get water out there. One is they truck it in. Believe it or not, that's a majority of the smaller grows, 10 greenhouses, even 100 greenhouses, 150, 200 greenhouses. Maybe that's about the max size you'll see this technique used. They have trailers with giant water totes on the back, 3,000 gallons. They have rental trucks rented by Hertz or whatever, 3,000-gallon water trucks. They go fill up at a water pumping station. They have an account there. And they drive it back to the grow site and they use the water to tend their plants. By the way, so the marijuana plant is a thirsty plant. Like mm-hmm. I've talked to people and they say, 
because of the environment up there in the summertime, this is a, this again, it's the desert, right? It's a hundred degrees plus it's very dry. The plants are actually at planted in the ground. At some point they're transplanted. And at most of these growth sites are actually planted in the ground in these, in these makeshift greenhouses could be a gallon a day of water that a plant requires. That's not out of the ordinary. So when you're talking about 1800 plants or 2000 plants in an, an average grow, whatever I said it was earlier, 1500 to 2000, that's 1500 to 2000 gallons of water a day. So if you are the leasing company that's leasing these heavy equipment trucks and that truck is filling up at a water station and going to a cannabis cultivation site and unloading the water, that truck has just violated something called 21 United States Code Section 881. It's an asset that has been used in the manufacture or distribution of a controlled substance. There's really no arguing with that. It delivered the water that was used in the manufacture of this drug. So that truck is subject to forfeiture. The pickup truck that's towing a trailer with a thousand gallon water tote in it, that pickup truck is also subject to seizure and forfeiture by the federal government. No one's gone to jail yet. We've just used laws that are already on the books. Finally, some of these large grows, they drill wells, right? Mm -hmm. Law enforcement knows who's drilling the wells. Law enforcement knows who's drilling the wells. All that needs to be done is send a letter to the well drilling company and say, hey, just a reminder, current federal law shows or, or firm for current federal law is such that when your drilling rig drills a well on this property to source water to be used to cultivate marijuana on this property, that's a violation of federal law and your drilling rig is subject to seizure and forfeiture. When the drilling company loses a $100,000 or $300,000 drilling rig, they're going to think real hard about who they're drilling wells for. It's very easy, Mark, when you go to one of these cannabis cultivation sites, when you see a trench around a two-acre property, all these white vinyl Quonset huts, it reeks like marijuana, and you see it ringed with motorhomes where there's people living. You know exactly what you're getting into. Not, now, not hard to figure out. Not hard to figure out. And you know what? You get the equipment back. But it's going to take probably six months, Mark, to go through the legal process. And you can mm -hmm. say, hey, we didn't know innocent owner. In the case of leasing trucks, you can say we mm -hmm. didn't know we were innocent owners. We leased a truck to someone. We didn't know they were doing this with our equipment. There's something that, you, that, that federal law can provide in this case. You have them sign something saying, okay, you're going to get your property back, but you're on notice right. that this is what people are doing with your property. And if you're doing it, if you do it again, you will not get your property back. The water delivery companies that deliver water, the equipment leasing companies that lease these water trucks, you could pretty easily convince them to get out of the business. Would it be a hit to their business? It would, but it would be a bigger hit to continue and take the chance of losing your equipment or having your equipment down for several months while you're going through legal process. Well, the thing back. is, Bill, it, it, yeah. and forgive me for stepping on you there, but no, I no. just think, I think that in, in most cases, Simply the notification, an 100%. initial trend would, would fix a problem. People are saying, you know what? It's not worth it. Yep. And it probably would not come down to, because I, listen, I got to be totally transparent here. I understand the value. I understand the strategy of seizing personal property for certain criminal offenses, allegations, investigations. I understand it, but I do have a problem with it a lot in a philosophical and quite frankly, constitutional basis. However, if we could actually stop the behavior just with the threat, I'm all for that. Just the yep. threat, whether I like it philosophically or not, but we want to fix a problem and we can fix a problem just by making someone uncomfortable with actually engaging the behavior and stop it. Then for me, that's a win-win. Yep. And, and I really feel like that could be done probably within if you made those businesses with threat of uh, seizure and forfeiture within 90 days, probably what the market looked like would change drastically. Now, mm -hmm. is it going to go somewhere else? Yes. Are they going to come up with other creative ways to get water then? Of course they are. But the idea, I think, at some point has to be to make it. it and hey, I, I, for me, making it a felony is the ideal thing. But I don't know if right. that's going to happen in California. That's not going to happen and, in California. 
It's not going to happen you, in California. No, we can't get it. Listen, you, you can't get a felony in somebody when they spill, steal a thousand dollars worth of merchandise from Target. So. Yeah. And so so the letter campaign was exactly, Mark, actually what was going to be done. The U.S. attorney's office at the time was actually behind that in Los Angeles prior to the current uh, U.S. attorney taking over. I don't know where he would stand on it, but it was the administration, let's call it, that, that shut that down and said, let the state of California figure out their own their own cannabis problem. Well, I think it's a great idea. I hope someone steps to the plate and implements it and let's see what happens. But we know internally California is not going to even try to fix a problem, let alone be able to fix it. So No. And finally, in closing, in wrapping this topic up, a big part of the issue is that we, the American people, have allowed the federal government to, to be inactive on this subject, meaning there's a law on the books by policy memo, something that we talked about, I don't know, a month or so ago on this show. Right. By policy memo or by political decision, it's not being enforced. It's creating havoc in the financial system. It's creating havoc in communities. We need the federal government to either to take some kind of action on this, to just take some kind of action. We'll see what happens. I've heard they're going to perhaps make marijuana a Schedule Three drug. I think that's even, even going to create a bigger problem, but we'll leave that for, I guess, the politicians to figure out. Mark, anything else on cannabis? No, I think I've gotten a contact high just by talking about it too much. So I, I, I don't disagree. Uh, on that, uh, thanks everyone for viewing. Thanks everyone for listening. And tune in next week for, for more on what will, I'm sure, be another fascinating subject.